Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and Totag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling and Jack's original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Today, we're introducing something new, something we call toe tags. So what's a toe tag? Well, officially, it's the tag they put on a dead body to say who they were. But for us, it's the first chapter in a fresh release in the mystery, crime, or thriller genre. Today's featured release is Architect of Courage by Victoria Westfeld. Chapter 1. And remember, we're only doing Chapter 1. When Manhattan architect Archer Landis let himself into Julia's apartment, he was surprised to find it dark. He strode down the short entry hall to the living room and felt for the light switch. The heavy draperies were closed and thick blackness pressed in on him. A trace of her perfume teased the air, along with another smell, elemental, evoking, Something. Julia, I'm here. For Landis, the second-floor apartment was a treasure house, its sangria-colored walls crowded with portraits and huge mirrors with carved, gold-painted frames. Deeply fringed paisley shawls draped chases upholstered in carmine velvet. It would require all his French curves and the full palette of rose and violet pigments to reproduce the effect. His glance traveled the room, skipping past something he didn't want to see. Something his brain didn't at first accept that he had seen it, until it reached the farthest corner and unwillingly returned to settle on the room's one discordant object. Julia sprawled on the chase, the white lace ruffle of her shirt front soaked with blood. For a moment, Landis' heart stopped. He stood frozen at the edge of the room, yet he saw himself rushing to her, kissing her hands, grabbing her shoulders and shaking her, soothing her, calling her. She didn't move and neither did he. He choked before he could create a single word. Now he identified the strange smell, blood. Blood that had oozed from a huge wound in her chest. Blood that had drenched the crocheted lace of her shirt and darkened the crimson velvet of the chase. A stray drop splattering upward had left a dot on her chin. He took two halting steps toward her. Shouldn't he wipe off that spot? Couldn't he put all the blood back? Couldn't he press his hands on her ravaged chest and seal life inside? Her dark eyes, wide open and fixed, gazed blankly toward him and told him he could not. He stepped backward to sag against the wall and slowly collapsed to the floor. His head drooped. He sobbed into the hands that had held her hands, caressed her face, hands that should be holding her now. When he raised his head, tears blurred the contours of her pale face and the empty black pools of her eyes all else washed by a tide of red. 
He couldn't bear to think about the terror of her final moments. What was the last thing she did? What did she see? Who did she see? Who? A dark cloud of vengeance rose in him like smoke from a bonfire. He had to call the police, make them come immediately, set the hounds of the law on the scent of her killer. Yet, yet he shouldn't. He couldn't be found in her apartment. His presence would damage his reputation and ruin Julia's. The lie he had told his wife Marjorie about his evening dinner plans rolled like a boulder tumbling through his thoughts. His associates, his team, the people he spent every day with considered Julia a colleague. They'd never trust him again. He wasn't on easy terms with betrayal, not enough practice. Nor was he clever with lies and excuses. He couldn't conjure up a plausible reason for being in her apartment when he was so clearly supposed to be elsewhere. He had to leave to escape the awful sight of Julia's body, the awful reality of it. What did I touch? He scanned the room. At one time or another, he touched the furniture, switches, faucets, dishes, glassware, books, and so much more. He'd have to explain those fingerprints eventually. Evidence of this visit, though, could disappear. If only he thought to never come tonight. If only he'd never made this awful discovery. He pulled out a handkerchief and wiped his presence away, scrubbing around the light switch. His back was to her, his eyes squeezed shut, and still he saw Julia's broken body. With the final look at the face he loved, Landis promised her she wouldn't be alone in the dark for long. He retreated down the hallway. He wrapped his hand in the handkerchief, quietly opened the apartment door, wiped the outside knob, and hurried downstairs to the lobby. He hadn't seen any of her neighbors when he came in. Would one of them be there now and see him leave? He ran his hand through his long and distinctive white hair, straightened the collar of his suit, and paused to compose his face. No, the lobby was clear. He exhaled. He walked east to 8th Avenue to hail an uptown cab. A few cars were parked on the opposite side of the street and he didn't see any pedestrians, except there. Up ahead, across the street, an elderly woman turned the corner, heading his way, held a yappy, wire-haired terrier by the lead. Tall as he was, Landis was hard to miss. The dog looked straight at him, barking furiously. Toby, the woman admonished her little dog. Her arm strained forward with the pull of the leash. Her attention was on the dog, and Landis still hoped he could slip away. Toby, she screamed, come back. Dragging his leash, Toby darted between parked cars. An SUV hissed toward them from the next corner. Landis stepped into the street and waved both arms. The SUV squealed to a stop. He scooped Toby up and handed him to his quivering mistress. No harm done. She hugged the rambunctious terrier, the little plastic bag of poop flapping in her hand. Toby, you naughty boy, you mustn't run from mama like that. Landis edged away, but she wasn't finished thanking him. She opened her handbag. What was she fumbling for? A tip, for Christ's sake? No, she pulled out a tissue and wiped her eyes. He put a few feet between them. Now, Toby, be good, 
and to her. Are you all right now? We're fine. You go on. You've done your good deed for this evening. All the way up 8th Avenue, Landis huddled in a corner of the sour-smelling cab, breathing hard. The swarthy driver stared at him in the rearview mirror. Under the man's suspicious gaze, he returned his phone to his pocket instead of calling 911. The sticky breath of the early June night blew through the cab's half-open window. This ride felt completely different from the one he'd taken. What, 40 minutes before? When he'd slip out of the Plaza Hotel, past the line of malodorous host-drawn carriages waiting for tourists, and toward the honking melee of Fifth Avenue. There he hailed a bright yellow cab and climbed inside, full of thoughts of Julia. A buzzing energy had him drumming the leather seat, willing the traffic lights ahead to turn green. Off the rails, straight ahead into the abyss. Before that earlier ride, Landis believed himself securely moving forward, on track and at speed, in full control of his considerable professional talents and personal powers. He worked the room at the plaza, a reception for his peers, the city's most talented musicians in glass and steel and stone. They sought him out, and he laughed with them, shook hands and patted backs, accompanying his good cheer with a convivial clink of ice in a glass of single malt. He bear-hugged the evening's honoree, Phil Prince. He brushed off praise and bestowed it on others. Accomplishments hallowed him, and because he was generous in his success, it did not breed resentment, but drew the light to him. He made sure everyone would remember greeting him, touching him. When the noisy crowd became sufficiently dense, he made his discreet escape. Now his re-entry into that world had to be just as smooth. Dinner was underway when he arrived, and he had to find a seat, leaving no time to place the call right then. He'd missed the salad. What's wrong, Arch? Where have you been? A colleague asked. You look awful. Landis adjusted the knot of his tie. <clears throat> Touch of a bug. Killed my appetite. He cringed at how easily the lie came. It was what he planned to say if anyone asked him why he hadn't appeared at dinner. At least now they wouldn't question it if he jumped up later and went out for a few minutes. He'd call the police from a hotel phone, not his cell. Much better. He'd do it between the main course and dessert. The men at the table commiserated. It's going around, one said. Three of my people are out. As his tables made aid and top shot, Landis frowned at his plate. Who would kill Julia? What possible reason would there be? Nothing in her world explained it. Her working life was his office, and her social life was him. He was confident of that, of her. Was it a random senseless act, or did some secret peril lurk close by? If so, it could be as close as his own skin. When the service came to clear, the food on his plate was rearranged but uneaten. The evening's introductions and accolades began. The words of the welcoming speeches jumbled meaninglessly. He rested his head on his hand and mapped out what he was going to say to the police. 
Dial 911, give the address, disconnect. Don't answer questions. Don't give them time to ask anything. How long does it take to trace a call? He'd stay on the phone for seconds. Only the facts, no context, hang up. Here came dessert. He'd lost another chance to make the call. The service set a collapsing strawberry pavlova in front of him. Frothy white meringue shell, a lake of red juice. Landis's stomach turned over. He pushed the dish away and took a great gulp from his water glass. Now he was stuck. It would be too awkward to step away during the commendations, especially since Landis's longtime friend and fellow Yale alumnus, Phil Prince, was receiving the main prize, the 2011 Calder Award for Integrity in Architectural Practice. Called to the lectern, Phil's first words were to ask the award's previous recipients to stand. Landis wobbled to his feet, waved. Oh my God, did I just smile? His other hand gripped the rim of the table so tightly he could hardly pry his fingers loose. Prynne's high-minded theme was courage, physical, mental, emotional, and moral. He might have been speaking directly to Landis, chiding him. Physical courage, Prince said, is the kind people think of most, the kind that lets us ski black diamond runs, complete marathons, drive the Jersey Turnpike. A misstep can end with the trip to the emergency department, but any damage is visible, treatable, and often heals completely. Not when a hole has been blown in your chest. Landis fingered the stem of his water glass. Mental courage, Prince continued, being brave enough to rally your mental faculties to make critical decision and not be paralyzed into inaction, that demands more. Prince cited race car drivers and soldiers in battle, Landis himself in Julius's apartment, stunned, panicked, and choking on tears. It was a direct hit. Emotional courage, Prince said, is when you put your inner self, your core being in harm's way, when you risk sustaining wounds people may never see and that may never heal, when you face truths you would rather ignore. It's when you risk the very essence of yourself. Of course, Landis had initial reservations about the affair with one of his employees. Of course, he worried his wife Marjorie might discover it but he left those concerns behind. Instead, he followed the single shiny track that appeared in front of him. He fell in love, unexpectedly, unlikely, unwisely, but Julia had opened his heart. Finally, Prince said, there's moral courage when you stick your neck out for some cause, not only simply for yourself, but because it's the right thing to do. The white noise inside Landis's head drowned out the rest. Although the speech wasn't especially profound, it earned a standing ovation that precipitated a rush for the doors. Clamoring colleagues swarmed the lobby. A discreet telephone call now was impossible. Moment after moment, he put off calling the police until not calling became inevitable. He simply could not speak the words that would make Julia's death real, that would pierce his chest like arrows. His life had a hole in the middle of it, and he felt the razor's edge. Unless he grabbed onto something, he would fall through. What he clutched tight 
was his shameful secret. Well, that is chapter one of Architect of Courage by Victoria Westfeld. I loved the Jersey Turnpike joke. Did you? That was an awesome. <laughs> I heard that. I was like. <laughs> it was subtle. Yeah, the whole audience should have been yeah. chuckling at that. So Architect of Courage was released on June 4th, 2022 by Black Opal Books, and it's available from Amazon and everywhere you get your books. Victoria Westfeld, who also goes by Vicky, has had short stories appear in popular mystery magazines and several crime anthologies. Her list of anthologies is really impressive, as is her magazine list. Uh, she's won awards from the Short Story Fiction Sh Society and the Public Safety Writers Association. She's a member of Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, and other crime organizations. And for the past decade, she's blogged several times a week at her website, www.vwestfeld.com. From June 20th to July 15th, 2022, Architect of Courage is going to be on tour with Partners in Crime. Check out the tour link uh, for more content and information in the show notes. Yeah, nifty. You ready for my book review? I am ready for your book review. Do you want me to play a little jazz over it? <laughs> you think Hold we on. need jazz? Jack oh, is still liking playing with uh, his Casio. I don't remember. How, I don't remember how this one goes. Did you write it? Kind of. <laughs> there we go. Okay, now I gotta pace myself to your rhythm. Oh, Hold I can on. slow down. No, no. What do we figure? 122 is the right for speaking. In the book, the genre was listed as murder mystery. If you pick up this book expecting a murder mystery, you, my friends, will be disappointed. This book is not a whodunit where amateur sleuth Archer Landis is solving the mystery of his lover's murder. Nay, nay. This book is a thriller with an unwilling hero. So Archer Landis is being accosted personally and professionally, and it's forcing him to chase this rabbit down the rabbit hole. So rating Architect of Courage on a five-point scale against this idealized perfect thriller, I give it about a 4.25. So if basically a, an A minus. Strengths of the story, the pacing is fast without being aggressive or too fast to follow, and it has lots of plot twists that are a hallmark of a good thriller. Our hero is in constant mortal danger, and like so many thriller heroes, he has no idea why. The setting moves between New York City, a beach house, and the south of Spain, and draws in international figures from Spain, Israel, and Morocco. Having the hero be an industry-leading architect sets this book apart because it brings in a world seldom explored in thrillers and really most fiction genres. Um, this book is very well written in terms of the noun verb, noun writing, and the editing. There's, there's a lot to like here. Where I felt the story fell short of ideal. Okay, so this book is well written. Um, the opening chapters were a little rough. I think you even maybe heard a little bit when I was reading that some of the adjectives were too flowery. And maybe this is a personal pet peeve, but the cheating husband falling on his own sword. I guess that might be a pet peeve of mine. Not a huge fan of the main character being like a little bit of a 
dick. <laughs> I'm not not a fan of him being a dick, but I'm also not a fan of him being like, you know, he intentionally cheated on his wife. And it's like, oh, what's my wife going to say? Like, dude, you cheated and you did it intentionally. It's not like you accidentally fell into her vagina. <laughs> there are also um, several convenient coincidence and suggestions by minor characters that fell less organic and more maybe intentionally set to advance the story to the next chapter. Coincidences, I guess, are a little bit of my pet peeve. I really like to see stories that are organically driven by the plot and not saying, hey, Archer, you're not going to go investigate this, are you? Like, well, I never thought of that. So that type of coincidence generally will get a, a slightly lowered rating from me. It's like when a book or movie uses like miscommunication as their whole plot point. The whole I plot point. I hate that. Yeah. Um, but this type of thing does clean up in about the fifth chapter, and then the story really takes off. And, and these are things that sometimes, well, and other people have told me, only I notice. Um, thriller endings are often difficult. Authors generally have created such a complex world with the weave of plots, and those are the twists and turns that readers love. But then to unravel each one in a way that's logical and satisfying, I mean, it does become a gargantuan task. So when you get to the end of the book and you look backwards or the entirety of the story, do the actions of all the players, not just the heroes, hold up? Now this is something that we always look for on Mysteries to Die For when we get to the end. Does it make sense? Yeah. So Westfeld did much better than most, I thought, um, but she wasn't perfect. I'm not going to go into spoiler details, and I hope lots of people pick this up and rate it and, and let's chat and you can argue with me. Um, some of the plot resolution points uh, prevented me from scoring the book higher, but truly I doubt it's something that the vast majority of mystery lovers will be bothered with. So bottom line, Architect of Courage is for you if you're into thrillers, if you like fast-paced stories, if you like stories based around architecture and international flavor. So yeah, I, I really did enjoy this. It was a little bit of a slow start for me because, like I said, but Victoria must have written the character well for me to dislike Archer as much as I did in the first couple chapters. <laughs> in the end, I still think he was a douchebag for cheating on his wife, but he's a, he's a pretty good character, and it's a really well-told story. Oh, sure. The one time I paused, you hit a clunker. Oh, my gosh. I cannot get it. <laughs> There we go. So join us for future toe tags where we'll explore new books coming out. And uh, join us for our regular scheduled episodes. Mysteries to Die For is all about solving the mysteries and having a heck of a good time doing it. Mm -hmm. I think that was a PG-13. Hell of a good time. Yeah. Freaking awesome time doing it. And Jack having fun on his keyboard. It's, it's a vibraphone one. This is It's a good setting. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. We will be back soon. Take us out, Jack. Beautiful.